0: that we might grow to be complete in Christ. The other day I was looking something up on my computer and ended up at the Sony Electronics site. One of the selections at the bottom of the screen caught my eye. The title of the item read, Discover what's within your soul. In the context of the screen of course, it was one selection amongst a number that gave me opportunities to look up various things for offer on the Sony site. I was actually looking for a part that I needed for my laptop computer. The selection I referred to allowed me to go to a page that Sony had prepared for its customers and which allowed them to delve deep into the offerings of this mammoth electronics company. Software for some very sophisticated games. MP3 downloads of music and treats, movies and camera paraphernalia littered the landscape on this particular site. Obviously, Sony's web designers sought to woo as many people as possible into this arena where they felt every fantasy could be satisfied, at least those listed. It was a grand effort to appeal to the desires of the multitudes of people who were seeking to fill that void we often speak about that seemingly insatiable appetite for entertainment, fulfillment, and deep satisfaction, that inner need that we all experience, a need to be satisfied. St. Augustine said it this way, and let me paraphrase, There is a God-shaped vacuum within each of us that can be filled by no one or nothing but God. And yet, people all around us focus on everything except God, so often trying to fill that void. They are unable to understand that it is God-shaped, meaning that only God can satisfy that longing, that need to be filled. We must find our rest in Him. Sony offers on their website a number of opportunities or alternatives for those who are looking for excitement and fulfillment but they are all in the wrong direction. They're all temporary. Remember what I said this election was called? Discover what's within your soul. Sony thinks music and movies and computer games and the like can satisfy what's the soul's desire. I beg to differ.
1: Above all powers Above all keys Above all wonders the world is ever known Above all wealth and treasures of the earth there's no way to measure what your worth For the world began above all The ball and thought of.
0: Discover What's Within Your Soul, a provocative title to be sure. At least Sony acknowledges that we have a soul and they encourage us with curiosity to sign in and check out what's within your soul that day. Unfortunately, disappointment resides there. The suggestions and offerings on Sony's site will provide pleasure for a few minutes at a time. That God-shaped vacuum within us cannot be quenched by any of these particular offerings. We can try to mask our inner longings for the eternal. We can pretend that we are satisfied with the many things that the world and even Sony offers us as substitutes. Music in and of itself is wonderful. A good movie can be engaging. A new computer game can often thrill us and challenge us. But at the end of life, when we stand before the King of Kings, Sony will have offered us absolutely nothing that can help us then. After contemplating these incredibly important issues, issues that have to do with life and death and even our eternal destiny, John Wesley expressed it like this, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And because he did, because of that amazing love, we can now become the children of God, heirs and joined heirs with Jesus Christ. That God-shaped vacuum can be filled as it was meant to be, and we can be satisfied eternally. So if you really want to discover what's within your soul, turn to the source, of truth, our creator, and find in him the streams of living water, and he will satisfy completely.
2: be if not for your love i'm so amazed that a god of power could be so merciful lord you're amazing you're amazing you've won my heart you've won my so amazing you've won my heart you've won my heart you're amazing jesus holy perfect sacrifice I will remember your death that gave me life. See, I was condemned to the wages of sin. But your mercy paid in full. Lord, you're amazing. Know the pain of dying on a cross. You my heart. You're amazing. You're amazing. You won my heart. You won my heart. You're amazing.
0: And now, with his message for today. Here's our pastor, Alan Lee.
3: Good morning once again in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today we continue to focus upon the theme, What Does Jesus Think? Based upon the principles as taught by our Lord Jesus Christ in his teachings on the Mount, we have already looked at the Beatitudes as his character portrait of a true disciple and have started to consider now Jesus' mindset or perspective on several vital issues, such as anger, Adultery, divorce, remarriage, and the taking of oaths and vows. Our premise being that a true disciple will view these issues the same way Jesus does, and as a result, seek to implement them in his or her lifestyle as we seek to glorify him today. Now, we want to consider at this time Jesus' view or perspective on retaliation as given in Matthew chapter 5 verses 38 through 42. Please follow along with me as I read the passage now from the New American Standard Bible. Quote, Jesus speaking, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. End of quote. The eye for eye and tooth for tooth concept of the law, as taught by the scribes and Pharisees, came to be known as the lex talions, or tit for tat principle. Jesus clarifies the original intent of the law and corrects the erroneous interpretation of the scribes that resulted in their disciples having a mindset bent on retaliation. Not too much different, actually, from the mindset today that motivates people to sue anyone they can for anything they can get. Retaliation. Jesus reminded his listeners that this was never intended as a proof text for revenge, but as a principle for justice. This is an administration principle of justice given as guidelines for the judges who arbitrate or dispute a claim. The very purpose of this system was to avoid personal revenge and vigilante law. Unfortunately, due to our fallenness that bends our interest to selfish gratification, whenever we seek to retaliate, we always do so to a greater degree than the ones that were injured, or the injury reoccur. I came across a quote in my files from Nikita Khrushchev, remember? He was once the Prime Minister of Russia, and he illustrates this point very clearly about how we over-exaggerate retaliation at times. Here's what he said on one of his visits to the United States. Quote, We communists have many things in common with the teachings of Christ. My sole difference with Christ is that when someone hits me on the right cheek, I hit him on the left so hard that his head falls off. That's the quote from Nikita Khrushchev. Now, I want you to listen to the original wording of the law of lex talions as given to Moses. Exodus chapter 21, verse 23, quote, But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, end of quote. Now, listen to the same thing given again in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 19, quote, If anyone injures his neighbor, whatever he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so he is to be injured." End of quote. Now, it's important to understand what is being said here. And to understand the essence of this law, we must first of all understand the basic principle it intended to convey. And that principle is that the punishment for a crime must fit the crime committed. Or, to put it another way, punishment must not be an access to the crime committed. In other words, The emphasis is upon the avoidance of excessiveness of punishment, the principle being that justice is never excessive in its demands. For instance, if a man causes the loss of sight of another man, he is not to be killed for that. He's not to lose his life for that. The most that should be exacted in punishment is the loss of his own eye, or in the terms of monetary compensation, no more than what the injured man would lose because of the loss of his eye. But even this is not demanded absolutely. There was also allowance for mercy. Lex talions was, in actuality, intended to set a boundary or limitation to punishment, not to demand that the maximum the law allowed was to, in fact, be exacted, as many erroneously believe this commandment is teaching. The law was, in fact, intended to control a victim's anger, a victim's violence, and desire for revenge. God clearly states this in Leviticus 19, verse 16. Listen carefully. Quote, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. End of quote. Now remember, that's not the New Testament. That's Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, in the midst of the law. This was the behind the lex talion principle. It was given specifically to civil authorities, not to individuals. We would say today it was given to governments, not the private citizens, and designed to prevent individuals taking the law into their own hands. The scribes, however, distorted and misrepresented the true intent of this law, they regarded the maximum limited provided by the law as what must be done to fulfill the law. In other words, the maximum became the minimum. They made no allowance for mercy at all. They taught that the full extent allowed by the law must be exacted at all times. In addition, they regarded the law of just retribution as their authority to inflict personal revenge upon the guilty person they regarded it as a personal right and responsibility rather than a civil or legal responsibility thus they used the law to back up and endorse their retaliation for personal injury which was not the intent of the law jesus view of retaliation on the other hand is entirely different and here in this passage he sets the record straight and corrects the erroneous interpretation and teaching of the scribes with regards to personal retaliation. Please listen to his words again, the words of Jesus Christ. Quote, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to see you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. End of quote. Jesus, in actuality, voids the very principle of the Old Testament law of retaliation as interpreted by the scribes and Pharisees. He gives a whole new interpretation, as it were, or explanation for his disciples, those who were true children of his kingdom. He presents a radical teaching and concept that even under controlled conditions, personal retaliation has no place in the life of a true believer of Jesus Christ. He insists that followers of the triune God are not to retaliate against those who wrongly use them, but instead they are to go beyond the minimum required of us and to do so in a loving way. He says in verse 38, do not resist an evil person, or as another version puts it, resist not the one who does you evil, end of quote. Jesus is referring here to personal relationships, not the state or government's obligation. Elsewhere, scriptures are clear in their declaration that government is to punish the evildoer for his evil doing. Justice must be served, The same principle, however, does not hold on the personal or interpersonal level, and this is important for us to realize. Here, the controlling principle is mercy and forgiveness, not retaliation or revenge. Another vital point, this teaching is directed toward the believer, not the unbeliever. It is directed to the true disciple, not a mere professor or a religionist. This principle is so contrary to the nature of an unsaved person or a person who rejects God out of their life that it would be impossible for them to obey. It seems like foolishness to the person without the Spirit. This, I say again, is meant for the genuine believer in Christ, a true disciple of Jesus Christ, one who is totally committed of being Christ-like in his or her life. The new radical principle Jesus introduces here is that one's personal self-interest and desire for personal revenge or retaliation must be laid aside for the glory of God. Jesus then gives four examples to illustrate this profound new truth and attitude that he is demanding of his true disciples. We have time today to look only at the first one. First, Jesus says, The true disciple or believer must give up his or her rights to retaliate for the infliction of personal insult or humiliation. Verse 39, remember what Jesus said? If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The reference here, in other words, is to personal insult, no matter how it is inflicted upon the individual. Jesus is stating a principle, not describing what must happen literally. He's just using that to demonstrate a principle. The principle Jesus is making is this. Do not resist or retaliate against the person who commits evil against you. Do not retaliate. An illustration of the principle is, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In other words, don't return evil for evil, but rather good for evil. Another illustration would be If someone refuses to give you recognition for doing a job, continue doing the job anyway. Don't retaliate by calling the persons all kinds of names or quitting and saying, I'm not going to do that anymore because nobody appreciates me. No, no, no. Jesus is saying that's the wrong way to retaliate when you feel that you have been insulted or you've been overlooked or whatever. Now, a true disciple does not know what it means to be insulted or ridiculed personally. Did you get that? See, this is radical. A true disciple does not know what it means to be insulted or ridiculed personally that will lead him to retaliate. He is to have the attitude of the Apostle Paul when faced with harsh criticism. Here's what the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motive of man's hearts. At that time, each man will receive his praise from God. End of quote. In other words, when it comes to personal attacks, I leave it to God to make things right. That's what the apostle is saying. He will vindicate me in his time. I leave the matter to him. My friends, that is what Jesus thinks about retaliation in the life of his followers. I ask you as I close, and we pick up next time, Lord willing, what do you think? Your answer will determine whether or not you are really a true disciple of Jesus Christ. As always, this is Pastor Lee saying, Sila, think, and act on these things. (laughs)
4: Happening in a the great command is promise he will surely come again